0: Let me encourage you to turn this time to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be continuing our series in this glorious letter, this joyful letter of Paul to the Christians he loved the most. We'll be reading uh, more than we have been a little bit, looking at more than we have been the last couple of weeks. Looking at verse 22 to verse 26 in this letter. That's what we'll be reading. So let's pay careful attention to God's word. From the Apostle Paul, from the Lord of glory. We'll begin in verse 22. Let's hear from our brother, the Apostle. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask that he would bless us. Father, show us. The glory of life with you. Show us the beauty of life with each other in your church. By your spirit, grow us. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. We have here what is known as a dilemma. We have here, in the words of the Apostle Paul, a true Christian dilemma. What's a dilemma? Boys and girls, you may not uh, No, it's one of those big words we don't really talk about. But what's a dilemma? It's a situation where you're torn between two things. We often think of a dilemma as two hard things. Uh, a rock and a hard place, we say sometimes. I'm in a tough, tight situation, a bad dilemma. But you know, a dilemma can be a good dilemma too. If you were caught between the option of cookies and cream ice cream, And the option of peanut butter ice cream, or at least if I'm caught between that option, I am caught on the horns of a very tough dilemma. They are both good. If you were stuck between one job you love and one job you love, it's a good dilemma. If you're stuck between a boy you like and another boy you like, it's a hard dilemma. A good dilemma. Now, Paul here says, I am in a dilemma. Verse 22, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I don't know. I'm hard pressed. Here is a holy dilemma. Recall that Paul's in prison. Recall where he is. He's in a Roman jail. He's under house arrest. His trial's in process. He's not yet been sentenced to death He is rejoicing, he has been, we've looked at it. He is rejoicing that even though he's suffering, even though his world is tiny, his Christ is big, his Christ is great, and he is being magnified through the suffering of Paul. He is delighted that Jesus is made much of. And now, beginning in verse 22, Paul begins to do what some of y'all do, I don't always do it myself. Some of us do it more than others. You know what that is? He begins to think out loud. Now, if you're married or if you have siblings, this may be a common thing you do. You hear somebody talking in the room next to you. You go into that room and you say, are you on the phone? And they put their hand up and say, hold on, hold on. I'm thinking. And you say, no, you're talking. Yes, I'm thinking out loud. It's very hard to understand what somebody's actually fully thinking whenever they're thinking out loud because very often the person who thinks out loud doesn't say everything. They say part of what they're thinking. They're, they mumble. And you're trying to hear and you're trying to understand. You're like, well, what are they saying? What are you thinking about? Well, so we have here with Paul. Paul is thinking out loud. Well, we don't get all of his detailed train of thought, but we get enough to figure out what the engine and what the caboose is. We get enough to figure out what basically Paul is saying, the plumb line of his thought, he is stuck in a holy dilemma, a sanctified struggle. Let's look first at the actual dilemma itself, verse 22. He has been saying, we've looked at it the last couple of weeks, to live as Christ, to die as gain. I have these two options, to live or to die. But if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. I don't know what I'm going to choose. He is reflecting on what will happen if he lives. If I live, what does that mean for Jesus? If I am not killed, what's going to happen? If I had the choice to live or to die, if I could choose my future, which would I choose? I don't know. I might prefer chocolate. I might prefer vanilla ice cream. I don't know. I might prefer life. I might prefer death. I don't know. He gives this simple statement, which I shall choose. I cannot tell. And then he gives details in the next couple of verses. Verse 23, verse 24. He gives us a few details about the dilemma. First, he says, it ain't easy. It's an intense dilemma. It's a hard dilemma. He says, I am hard pressed. I'm in dire straits. I'm in a tight spot. This word pressed is the same word that Christ uses in Luke 19, 43, when he speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Roman armies. Christ says the armies will encircle and they will press the city. They will pressure to destroy the city. It's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5 14. He says, The love of Christ constrains me. Literally, it pressures me. It presses me. The love of Christ compels me. Paul is being squeezed. He's being pressed between these two options. It's an intense dilemma. But second, it's not a bad dilemma, it's a good dilemma. Both the options here are good. It's not a choice between bad and worse. It's not a choice, boys and girls, between eating yucky eggplant and disgusting cabbage. I'm sorry if you like either or even strangely both of those things. It's not a choice between one bad option and one other bad option. With Paul, it's not a rock and a hard place. He has two good desires. Look at verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. And that word desire is really a bad, it's a weak translation. It's one of the disappointing things about uh, so many Bible translations. They, uh, they neuter the Bible. They make it seem so much less powerful. This word desire is actually a strong yearning. It's the same word the New Testament uses for lust. Same word the New Testament uses for, in a negative sense, lust. We're told in Hebrews that angels long. Angels strongly yearn. You might even say in a holy sense, angels have a holy lust to see the gospel revealed. And so Paul says, I have this intense longing to die and be with Jesus. He speaks, he says, what is the longing? What is the desire? It is to depart and be with Christ. And that's another beautiful word. That word departs, a glorious word. It's the word used in Greek for ships. When ships are all ready, they all have the equipment, all the sailors are on board and they got their cargo and the captain says, loose the sails, hoist the sails, loose the rope, cast off, engage. And what happens? They, they cast off. It's the word used for the ship going into the sea, the bright blue yonder. That's how Paul describes death, by the way. Sailing into the very presence of Christ, casting off. Notice the strong desire. He says it is far better. In fact, literally, he, in the Greek, it's much more better. It's very much more better. Bad English, great Greek. Paul piles up expressions. He piles up comparatives. He's... he's Repeating, he's expressing this sanctified lust, the sanctified longing to cut his moorings, to cut the ropes from the dock of life and to be with Jesus Christ. But Paul's in the tug of war. And if you've ever played tug of war, I have. Have you ever played tug of war? You know that on the end of the tug of war line, you always want the strongest guy or the strongest gal at the end. We call it the anchor person, the anchor man. They're at the end. they got to set their feet. And so Paul's in a bit of a tug of war here. On the one side, he has the anchor of dying and being with Christ. He has the anchor of life with Christ. Yet he says, there's another side here. There's a tug on the other end of the rope. There's the other team. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account he is realistic about the need that other Christians have of him. He says, you need me to keep living. You need me to stick around. You need me to be with you for your sake. Do you feel that tension? Paul sees personal gain. Death brings, we looked at it last week, death brings knowledge of Christ, greater knowledge, greater holiness, greater companionship, greater communion with Christ far better, much, much more better. But he loves these Christians, the other hand, He loves these Christians. He loves these Philippian saints. He loves Lydia. He loves the jailer. He loves the slave girl. He was with them at the birth of their church probably about 10 years before. And he thinks of all the threats to the church. He thinks of all the doctrinal threats, all the false teachers. He thinks of all the internal issues. He thinks of all the problems they may have. And his pastor's heart is yearning That he can be with them and work with them because he cannot think just of his own gain, his own personal gain. And so he has a tug of war. He has a tug of war, Jesus and death with Christ, personal gain on the one hand. And yet, all the needs of the church, all the needs of the saints, he thinks it's better for them. That's the dilemma. And then Paul makes a decision. He makes a decision. He he resolves a dilemma. This is verse 25, verse 26. He makes the decision. He resolves the dilemma. He comes to a personal conviction, verse 25, convinced of this. Notice he does not get a word from the Lord. He does not get direct revelation. He does not have some spiritual experience that gives the answer. He makes a choice. He doesn't know if he's going to die. He doesn't know if he's going to live. But he has an inward resolve Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with y'all for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul sees the great need at Philippi. He sees God's providence in his trials. He concludes it is more necessary for me to live for your sake. He concludes it. That's the choice he makes. He says, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ. I need to assist you. I need to assist your faith. I need to assist your progress in the faith. I need to assist the way in which you can glory in Christ. So that's the text. That's the decision you make. Dilemma, decision. That was a very quick point too, wasn't it? <laughs> Long point three. What does that mean for you and me? What does it mean for them? Dilemma, decision. Discipleship. What does it mean for us? We see here, as I mentioned at the very beginning, this is a Christian dilemma. This is not a bad, it's not a choice between two bad things. This is a holy, a sanctified, a good dilemma. And therefore, you and I, as Christian boys and girls and men and women, can learn a lot from how Paul handles it. What do we learn here? We learn here what it means to really be a disciple of Jesus Christ. We learn here what it means to be a true Christian. We learn first about desires. We live in a world today that's all about desires. You have a desire, do it. You have a little feeling, you have a little impulse, hey, indulge it. You have something you think is great, go for it. You yourself are the important one. We learn here that Paul has two desires. He has a selfish desire. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is far much more better. And yet notice that the godly person, like Paul here, does not frame her choices, does not make her choices, does not frame her desires with selfish interest at the center. He does not center on gain for himself. Advantage Paul... Die and be with Christ. Advantage others' life here on earth. Tug of war. How does Paul resolve the dilemma? He focuses his mind. He focuses his aspirations. He focuses his soul. He corrals his desires, the bucking bronco of his desires. He corrals them, not on himself, but on the needs of others. You see, the godly person does not look at her life and her own desire and say, what personal gain, what selfish ambition can I get out of this situation? What personal interest of mine can I kind of push along in advance? The Christian does not analyze each person they interact with on the basis of how can they help me? Many of y'all may know, uh, maybe you don't, but I read right when I was younger, That classic work by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People, you know what it was? The message was, if you want to get ahead in life, fake interest in other people. You want to get ahead in life? Here's what Dale Carnegie says you should do. Look, when you go into their office and they see their desk, look at their pictures. When you go into their home, look at the pictures of their family. Do they have kids? Do they have a grandmother? Do they like playing golf? Do they fish? Do they hunt? Do they do this? Are they a fan of the sports team? And then engage them in conversation about what they like. Now, those are there's some wisdom in that, I suppose, but Dale Carnegie says the whole reason you do that is so that you can win friends and influence people. Yourself! It's all about you! And for so many of us, we may gossip that up in Christian language and saying, oh, I care about you, but tell me the latest on the problem. We call that gossip, sanctified gossip. But the Christian cannot analyze who we talk to on the basis of how can they help me feel better about myself? How can they advance my career or my personal happiness? And I suppose this is the question for us. When you're torn between obligations, when you're torn between alternatives, when you are faced with a dilemma like Paul, not a bad dilemma, but a good dilemma, how do you make that decision? How do you weigh the options? What is the focus of your plan? What is the focus of your dream? What is the focus of your desire? Is it your personal gain? I will be in a better place. Or can you say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 33, I don't seek my own profit, I seek the profit of the many. Follow me, my example, as I follow Christ. I don't seek my own. I think one of the chief reasons most of us feel second-rate Christians, many of us are kind of, feel as though we're average at best, saints, is that we make ourselves the measure of any hard choice. My feelings, my likes, my desires, my future, my conclusions, my family, our needs, our problems, that is the boundary. That's what we look at. That's primarily what we weigh in our decision making. If I find in myself desires, shouldn't I satisfy my own first? It is the swamp of selfishness. To, we can't get out of it to think of others. But what is the essence of godliness? What is the essence of godliness? Is it not to be like Jesus Christ? And what do we read this morning in Mark? What do we read out of of Mark? The son of man came not to be served. The son of man came to serve. And what is that service? To give his life as a ransom for many. Did Jesus Christ seek his own? That is the fundamental question. In the calculus, in the divine calculus of salvation, did he seek his own? Did he not seek your joy in your good? So many of us are trapped and we are joyless in the church as a Christian. We are dry, however you want to call it, because our joy is found in our own judgments, in fulfilling our own desires and satiating them and not submitting them. It's found in our own liberty. You see, Paul knows his rights as a Christian. Paul knows he is free as a Christian to do all sorts of things but he is willing to give up his rights for the sake of others. What was the last desire of yours? This is a good heuristic. This is a good test, a good metric. What was the last desire of yours that you gave up, whether for a time, for a season, for longer? What was the last desire of yours that you felt, that you gave up because of other Christians? Paul loves a good steak. Paul loves hamburgers. But he is willing not to eat meat So that his weaker brothers and sisters don't confuse meat with the gospel. Here's the point. The Christian does not center herself when thinking of her desires. But centers Christ and others. You'll notice that Paul makes his decision after he says verse 24. You matter. You have needs. I have needs. You have needs. And then he makes his choice is that part of your decision making the needs of others but considering your your life your choices work and life and play selfless desires that's the first lesson we learn here second second do you see paul's confidence the godly person like paul is invincible until god is done with him Paul knows that when it's time to go, he is ready. When it's time to go, he is ready. But until then, he is confident that God can use him, will use his work. He knows until the appointed time of death, I will serve the church. And that means he can look at Nero. He can look at the government. He can look at Rome. He can look at any threat. And he can say, who cares? I will continue to follow Christ. I will continue to work. The purpose of God meant that Paul was invincible until God was done with his life. And that's true of every Christian. Do you know that you're invincible until God calls you home? If you labor in training up the next generation, if you labor in nurturing children, you are invincible until Christ calls you home. If your work is to be salt and light, in a crooked generation or an unglamorous way, an undramatic way. It is a beautiful thing to know that God will be glorified in Christ. That you may have ample cause, verse 26, to glory in Christ Jesus. Because you're invincible. Think too many of us are spiritual hypochondriacs. Too many of us are spiritual or maybe just physical hypochondriacs. We worry that this pain or this problem means the end is near. We obsess over this issue or this concern. We're anxious and worried. We fret, and so we are of little use to King Jesus. Do you know that no matter if the engine on the aircraft fails, your life is held in the hand of God? Do you know that that no matter how malignant the tumor is, your life is held in the hand of God and he has labor for you to do until you draw your last breath. Shouldn't that put praise in your heart? Shouldn't that give you an impetus to serve him until the day he takes you home? Third, Paul desires to live as long as his life glorifies Christ. Therefore, the Christian desires to live as long as his life promotes the glory of Christ. That's verse 25. I will remain and continue with you all so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ. Why is Paul's day and work, the glory of Christ? Why does Paul labor, the glory of Christ? Why does Paul make his vision? The glory of Christ. Nothing matters to Paul so much as the magnification of Jesus. And for Paul, so for you, so for us. There are few marks more relevant to your heart as a Christian, to the health of you as a Christian, to the health of a church. There are few more basic questions than this. Do you seek the glory of Christ? Do we seek the glory of Christ? I think most of us would say, if I did a poll, a straw poll, and ask you, do you want to live longer? I think most of us would say yes. Most of us would raise our hands at that. You know, if you're in your 70s, I'm sure you want to be 80. If you're 10 years old, you want to grow up at least. to Be like mommy and dad. But if I were to ask a different question, why? Why do you want to live more? Why do you want to live longer? Why do you want more life? Oh, the cruise. I need to take, I haven't taken a Mediterranean cruise. I need to take the cruise. Why do you want to live longer? My career goal needs to be met. I haven't been promoted in in ages. My ambitions. My kids need to, I need to be a good parent for my kids. I need to, I need to find the one. I just need to get married. I just need to have friends. I just want to see my grandkids. Right? Most of us want to live for selfish reasons i got to finish the renovations. i got to graduate. Others of us, of course, want worse. They want to live just to indulge our our passions, indulge our pride and our possessions, our lives. What if the Apostle Paul want to live longer? What if the Apostle Paul want to live longer? He says, I want to live longer to be fruitful. I want to bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. When my life cannot do that, it's not worth living. You know, this is this is the lesson in the book of Kings. We mentioned it. and We went through it a few years back. So many of the kings of Judah and some in Israel, they began well. The first third of their lives until middle age, they were doing pretty good. Some did great until middle age. And until they were older, they were successful and righteous and they sought the Lord In the last third of their lives, the last decade of their lives, they undid everything that they had done in the first two thirds. Think of Solomon as a prime example, and the others, of course. So why do you want to live? What is life if life is squandering all the good that God has done in you, all the good that God has given you? The aim of Paul is to promote the glory of Christ. This is the dividing line. This is the dividing line between the person who knows Jesus and the person who does not know Jesus. This is the dividing line. Why do you do what you do? If he is not the all-conquering ruler of your universe, how could he be the conqueror of the whole universe? If he is not the center of your life, how can he be the center of all life? And that is why the basic call of the Christian is what the Master says. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Not follow your instincts, not follow Jiminy Cricket, not follow your friends, not follow your family, follow Jesus Christ the Lord. There must be this totally new center in your heart. Is it there? Why do you do what you do? Why do you want to live more? May it be for the glory of Christ. Finally, only the Christian can face both life and death with a smile with joy. Only a Christian can face life and can face death with joy. Many folks are happy to think about death because they're in agony. Many folks are happy to think about death and they're joyful and they're smiley when they think about dying because, oh, life is terrible. Life is awful. Life is one bad thing after another. Other folks love life. Other folks are just and long, great, life's amazing. I don't want to think about death. I don't, I don't, I ignore that. I Put it away. Put it aside. Deny it. I'm not happy when I think about death. That's morbid. It's Shakespeare, right? To be or not to be, that is the question. Some folks want to avoid the misery of death, so we live. Other folks want to avoid the misery of life, so they seek death. But the beauty of the Christian, the brightness of the face of Jesus Christ. Is that Paul can face both death and life with joy. It's not a bad dilemma. It's a good dilemma. He can face both death and life with joy on the death side of the equation. What joyful event does he have to look forward to the face of Christ, the glory of Christ? And we think about living on earth. What does he look forward to? He thinks of the great joy and glory of working for the goal of others, for the goal of the church at Philippi. Two beautiful ends, two amazing aims. He's not pessimistic. He's not dopey Eeyore. He's not saying, woe is me. He's not depressive. He's not dismissive. He's seeing the beauty in both, the good in both the glory in both, the good of death, the good of life. And I guarantee if you were to go to your neighbors and knock on their doors, if you were to talk to them at the next neighborhood party or event, and you were to ask them, do you look at life and do you look at death and do you smile at both? They would say no. They would say, they'd tell you about their grandma who was in the hospital and she was just suffering. And you know, I'm glad glad she's gone. She was in such, such misery. That's what people say, isn't it? We say, oh, you know, they were just in misery. Let me tell you what, friends. If they don't know Christ, they're in worse misery now. If they don't know Jesus Christ, it's not a gain. It's not a net gain to end the misery of this life. If you die out of Christ, you enter misery. You enter the presence of God without a mediator. Does that truth strike you? But the soul of the godly, the soul of the Christian, if you're convinced that life is seeing the face of Christ, that when you live, you are of much use to Christ, you can face life with joy. And if you know that in death, you are going to face the face of Christ and you are going to live in joy in death, you can face death with joy. Without morbid dread or terror, is this your outlook on life? Is this your outlook on death? Can you face both? Are you trying to just not think about death? Mm-mm. Are you trying just to get rid of this life? Do you have full-throated trust that whether in life or in death, Christ is yours? I guess that's really the great, the great application of this, this whole passage. I guess that's really the great, the great question to ask us. Have you ever felt the dilemma? Have you ever felt this dilemma? Have you ever felt the the toe war? Has Paul's dilemma ever been your dilemma? Have you thought of the beauty of heaven? Or are you just thinking about this world and this life and what you can get out of it? And what you can do and how you can serve. And and plan A and plan B and plan C. Have you thought of what what, what lies beyond? Heaven with Christ. Or are you just thinking about that and, and you're not transferring the love of Christ and glory to the love of Christ for his body on earth. Do you feel the pain? Has it been a dilemma that to depart is gain and to stay is gain? If you don't feel any longing to depart and be with Christ, I think maybe we're too earthbound and we're too, too focused on these earthly things. Maybe we're too obsessed with changing the world. You know, Paul does not say my longing is to be around when the Roman culture becomes more Christian. When society is fully redeemed, Paul looks to heaven and he sees the coming glory of Christ. And then he looks on earth, he says, to remain is more necessary for your sake. The Christian may labor and live in confidence without centering his selfish gain. Is this your life? May it be so. The great missionary John Patton was heading out to the South Seas about 150 years ago. He was heading out to the Pacific Islands. He was talking to to an older elder in his church. And the older elder was named Mr. Dixon. Mr. Dixon said, you shouldn't go, John. There are cannibals out there. You will be eaten by the cannibals. They will rip you and take you for dinner. Patton replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now. And your own prospect is to be laid in the grave soon. Bold words. He said, there you will be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I but live and die, serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as beautiful as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. So, friends, put Christ first, put his gospel first, put his glory first and let all else follow. Let's pray. Oh, glorious Father, we praise you that you do give us life in Christ. We ask that you would reveal the selfishness of our own hearts and our desires, that we would sense that great dilemma to die and be with you to live and remain here and be of much use. Show us that tension and show us ultimately the way our Savior resolved it by giving his life for his people. Let ask that you would give us the same invincible confidence in him that he had in you.